Well, I want to start this morning uh, by asking you a question. How would you respond if a friend came up to you and asked you, how would you describe your faith? Maybe you're at work, maybe you're on a lunch break, or maybe it's just over the weekend, and a friend that doesn't go to a church, is not a Christian, comes to you and says, what is, what is the core of what you believe? Give me a summary. As you think about it, what would be some of the themes, the most important themes that you would emphasize? What might be some of the themes, since it's the first time talking with this person about faith, that you might leave out? What is, what is it that we want to focus on? And I wonder, would any of you jump in and first talk about God's judgment? Would God's judgment day be the first thing you start with? Probably not. And I don't think I would either. I think there's a lot that we can talk about. But as we think about God's judgment, we want to make sure that we, we don't pass over it. While we might talk about Adam and Eve and how sin entered the world, maybe we would talk about some of the stories that we've learned. We might leave judgment to a later date. And while I think it's okay to not have that be in our first conversation with a coworker or a friend, I think it's important that we do not miss all that the Bible has to say about God's judgment. Especially since talking about judgment can be awkward. It can be uncomfortable at times. So we should be careful that we do not neglect it altogether. I think the stereotype is that older, older churches in the past only focus on God's judgment and his wrath, yet we know that that's not true. But I think the opposite stereotype can be true in modern churches, where it is left out altogether, not talked about enough. And as we think about this, how do we know how much to teach on it? How do we know how much to focus on it or to avoid it? And as we ask that question, I think we should let the Bible be our guide. As the Bible talks about judgment, we should talk about judgment. As the Bible emphasizes it, we should emphasize it. Not giving it too much weight, but not ignoring it. I think that's how the authors of the Apostles' Creed thought about this topic as well. Although the Apostles' Creed does not say everything that a Christian should know and believe, it presents the main tenements of the Christian faith. And in it, they include a line on judgment. And so because of that, this morning, as we look to what the creed says, we will be focusing on the line from which he comes to judge the living and the dead. If you are new with us this morning, we have been doing this all summer. We've been walking line by line through the Apostles' Creed and seeing where Scripture backs it up. And while it might be a little heavy this morning, talking about God's judgment, what coming judgment will look like. My prayer is that through this time, God would build us up in our faith. I'm trusting that the Holy Spirit will do the work of convicting where conviction is needing, needed. I'm trusting that the Holy Spirit will comfort where comfort is needed and encourage where encouragement is needed. And I pray that through all of this, we would come to see Christ more clearly so that we can worship him more fully. 
So as we begin our study on this topic this morning, I want to structure our time by answering two questions. And these questions will help guide our time as we look at a lot of different passages throughout the Bible. So the first question that we have is, what does the Bible say about the promise of Christ's return and his judgment? And our second question is, how does the Bible call us to respond to this promise? So we can start with this first question, what does the Bible say about God's promise of Christ's return and judgment? To answer this question, I want to take some time to look through some of the key passages in the New Testament where the Bible talks on Christ's return and judgment. Since we live in a period and a time where this is not emphasized or preached on very much, it can be easy for someone to simply assume, well, maybe that's because the Bible doesn't have a whole lot to say on it. Perhaps the Bible is is vague on judgment. It's unclear. But as we will see today, that is not the case. While there are some topics that are focused on more, judgment is talked about quite a lot. And I was actually surprised to see this in my preparation. I never sat down before and taken all of the verses throughout the, the New Testament that talk about Christ's return and his judgment and put them together to read through and study them. And as I did, the list kept building up. We will not look at all of them this morning, but I was surprised to see the bigger picture and to see how important and central this belief was to the New Testament authors. So as we study them together, my hope is we will get a bigger picture of what this day will look like. What will the coming judgment day look like so that we can spur one another on to live faithfully and wait patiently for him to come. As we start, we will look at the gospel accounts. We'll see what Jesus teaches on judgment, and then we'll move on to Acts, the New Testament epistles, and finally, the book of Revelation. And as we start with Jesus, in our modern time, and our modern thinking of him, this might sound a little strange. Does Jesus really teach on judgment that much? Many people out in the secular world will just say that, well, Jesus just taught on love. He's the one, after all, that says, don't judge anyone. Isn't that right? But if you read through the Gospels, what you see is that Jesus spoke on judgment more than anyone else in the entire Bible. While it's true that Jesus spent much time teaching on love, what this shows us is that his teaching on judgment, his teaching on love, don't contradict as the world would say that they, they do. You see, without judgment... God cannot be truly loving. Without judgment, Jesus would have to pass over or cover up evil and injustice. And that would mean that he is evil and unjust in himself. So while judgment is hard, it can be tough to talk about, especially in our Western church, judgment is a central piece to God's love. His love shows itself in judgment. He is unwilling to overlook sin and evil. Imagine if a boss at your work were to cover over sexual assault in the workplace. This would not be loving or just. And the same is true as for, our, for the Messiah, that he cannot just wipe away, but he must deal with sin and evil. One passage where we see Jesus talking about his return in judgment comes from the Gospel of John. John 5, 26-29 records Jesus saying, 
For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment, because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. You see here, Jesus is being incredibly clear. God the Father has given him complete authority to bring judgment. He is the one that will judge the world, and the reason is, is because he is the Messiah. While we usually think of Jesus as the one who lays down his life as a sacrifice for sins, which is true, what is also true is that God the Father has appointed Jesus as judge. Although the first time Jesus came to pay for sins as a sacrifice, the Bible teaches that the second time he comes, he will be bringing judgment. And another place in the Gospels where we see Jesus speak of judgment comes from Matthew 25. This is the passage that Mike just read for us. We see here that Jesus is unambiguous about what will happen when he comes for a second time. In Matthew 25, 31, just reading the first part of it again, Jesus says, when the Son of Man, and this is Jesus, comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on the right, but the goats on the left. Don't miss how huge this passage is. Jesus knew he was coming back. He was confident that one day he would return and bring judgment, not only for the people of Israel, but he says for the whole world. Imagine how strange this must have sounded for the people listening to him as Jesus is walking and teaching and at times homeless, living a humble lifestyle, having other people persecute and mock him while Jesus all the time knowing he is the one that God the Father has appointed to come and judge the living and the dead. And that is why we can have confidence that Jesus is the only way to salvation. You see, the Bible tells us that there's no one else, no other name, that we can be saved. There are not multiple roads to being right with with God because there is only one judge. Since our life will not be examined by different rulers, we will not have to give an account to separate gods. Jesus, and Jesus alone, is the one that can save. He is the one that justifies us and then declares us either guilty or innocent. And Jesus was not the only one that talked about the second coming and the day of his judgment. In the rest of the New Testament, we see the authors preaching and teaching on Christ's return quite often. For them, Christ's return was a major part of their gospel message. Paul demonstrates this in the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 17, we see Paul, as he is in Athens, speaking to a group of Greeks. These are people that did not know the Jewish law. They did not know all of the traditions. And Paul preaches a message to them. And listen to how Paul speaks of Christ's return in Acts chapter 17, starting in verse 29. 
Paul says, being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like, is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of, uh, of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Although this might not be how you and I would approach a conversation with a seeker, someone who's just asking him what does Christianity teach for the first time, we see that Paul dives straight in. He lets them know that God has appointed a time when he will judge the world in righteousness. And it will be by the man that he has chosen, Jesus the Messiah. Paul says that we can have confidence that Jesus will judge the world since God showed him to be the Messiah. God proved that Jesus is the Messiah by raising him from the, from the dead. So Paul's speech shows how central this idea of judgment was for believers in the early church. It wasn't something ignored. It wasn't something neglected. But it was a core tenet of their message. He warns all that they will have to give an account for their life. We see again in Paul's writing to the church in Rome, this idea. In Romans 14, 10 through 12, the Holy Spirit speaks through Paul and says, why do you pass judgment on your brothers? For you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account to God himself. For Paul, the return of Christ and his coming judgment was something that factored into every decision in his life. This motivated him to live a certain way and view the whole world in light of the fact that he would give an account. He would stand before Jesus. He lived his life knowing that Christ could return at any moment. And Christ was the judge. And that's why he encourages the Romans in this passage to not squabble over little things. To not get caught up in controversy and and to use one's freedom to hurt someone else, he encourages them to remember that one day all of us will stand before Christ. And as we've seen now Jesus and Paul, we're going to now look to Peter. In 1 Peter, we see that Peter also speaks clearly on this coming judgment. In 1 Peter chapter 4, starting in verse 3, we see the Holy Spirit, riding through Peter, say, For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. What Peter is saying here is, listen, the time for living like the world is done. You had enough time to live like that and experience that life. Don't live that way anymore since you were in Christ. But when you stop, the world is going to be surprised. When you, when you repent and turn from your sin, the world will be surprised and they will mock you. 
They will make fun of you. Don't worry. They will be held responsible for this. They will give an account of their actions to Jesus. This is the one. He is the one who will come to judge the living and the dead. And so finally, as we've seen now, Jesus, Paul, and Peter, before we move on to answering our second question, we can read from John in the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 20, 11 through 15. And this is, this is a, a vision, a revelation that Jesus gives to John of the future day of judgment. Paul records, us, records it for us so that we can see what this day will be like. You want to turn there, Revelation chapter 20, starting in verse 11 through 15. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. And books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of the fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. This is the final judgment. Every single person, whether great or small, will stand before God at the end of time. The passage goes above and beyond to show that every person will be there. This judgment is not just for those who have died a certain way, whether that's in the sea or not in the sea. It's not for those who are rich, only for those who are rich or those who are poor. Every person will be here. All people, no matter their status, no matter what they did, will be standing before Jesus on that final day. And while we've mostly been looking at the New Testament passages, I want to quickly jump back to the Old Testament to see how this is not just a New Testament idea. If you would turn to Daniel chapter 7, Daniel also received a prophetic vision of this day. And I want to read it so we can see the similarities, how, how the language used is almost identical. Daniel chapter 7, which we've referenced almost every sermon recently. Daniel chapter 7, starting in verse 9, says, As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand Thousands served him, and 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. It's amazing to see the similarities of these two scenes. God is on his throne, ready to judge. All people stand before him, ready to be judged, and the books are opened. It's a vision of the same day given to prophet Daniel hundreds of years before Christ would even come. 
So from these passages, and there are so many that we didn't have time to look at this morning, it's clear that the Bible is unambiguous about the promise of Christ's return and his judgment. From Daniel in the Old Testament to Jesus and the authors in the New Testament, the message is the same. Christ will return, and each person will stand before him. So from this foundation, we can now move forward to answer our second question. How does the Bible call us to respond to the promise of Christ's return? And while there are many implications of Christ's return, we will spend the remainder of our time just looking at two main points. The first point is Christ's return causes us to hope. And our second point will be Christ's return causes us to love. So let's start with the first one. So as you've been hearing this first part of this message, as we've looked through the scripture, understanding that this judgment day is coming, you might be thinking to yourself, how is there a place to hope in this? Doesn't his return mean that we get judged? And and that's what we just saw. His return does mean that judgment day is coming. And yet, we still have hope. Although we see in this clearly that we will be judged based on our actions, how we live matters, we can still have hope. As you hear this idea, as we've been reading, that we will be judged on our actions, and Revelation makes that really clear twice, you might be starting to question, wait, wait a second, is the Bible now teaching that we are saved by works? Is this, there, is this the idea that we have to earn God's love, earn our own righteousness by living a good enough life? And we know that that's not what the Bible teaches. We know from Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8, that God says, By grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one can boast. No one can boast. That means our works, our deeds, how we lived cannot ever save us. So then why are our actions judged? Why must each of us stand before God facing his judgment seat? And this is an important question to ask because as we study God's word, we see that both are affirmed. The passages about the judgment day, say we will be judged based on our works, and yet we know that the gospel affirms again and again that it is by grace that we are saved, through faith. So how do these things work together? Well, we can think about it this way. How is our faith proven to be genuine? Is it possible to know if someone has true faith? Is it possible to know that I myself or you have true faith? Unfortunately, there are many out there that would say we can't know. It's up to God. I've had friends that, as they talk about others in their life that are far from God, living in sin, will say it's uncertain because we can't know. And, I, and while I know that their heart, their motive is to not judge, that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible says we can know. Looking again to Matthew, in Matthew chapter 7, 15 through 16, Jesus says, speaking of false prophets and how you can know them, he says, beware of false prophets 
who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. And then again in Luke, Jesus teaches the same idea. In, in Luke chapter 6, 43 through 45, Jesus says, For no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. For each tree is known by its own fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of the evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. In other words, we can see someone's faith through their actions. How they live demonstrates if they are truly believing or not. If the Holy Spirit is truly inside the person, we will see the fruit of the Holy Spirit. We will see evidence that the, the Spirit is alive in them as they produce love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. But if the person is not trusting in Christ, this will also be evident in their life and their speech. We see this exact same idea taught by James, the brother of Jesus, as he confirms this. In James chapter 2, 14 through 18, it says, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily good, and one of you says to him, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. For someone will say, I have faith. You have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. James' argument is an important one. Faith is not some hidden secret that is buried down, a secret within our heart. Faith is something that is seen. It is evident through the, the way someone lives, through their actions, through their choices. True saving faith will always express itself in good works, even though good works are not what saves us. And as I think about this idea and this concept, a story that I heard a long time ago comes to my mind about a famous tightrope walker. This man would set up a, a tightrope across Niagara Falls and walk across. And as you can imagine, large crowds would gather to see the man perform this amazing act. And at first, he would amaze the crowd by simply walking across without a safety line. But then, as the day would go on, he would make it even more daring and exciting to watch. He would push a wheelbarrow across the line, filling it with rocks. After the crowd is amazed, and the man has proved his skill again and again, he would ask, who believes that I could take a grown man across this rope? As you can imagine, the crowd would cheer in excitement, urging the man to try it. Then after the man reaches out his hand, the crowd falls deathly silent as he asks, who will be my first volunteer? You see, many confess faith in Christ, 
Many say that they believe. They have been amazed by the miracles of Jesus. They jump up and down in excitement when you ask them if they truly believe. But when it comes time to put their faith fully in Christ's hands, their unbelief is revealed. You see, true saving belief is not just believing that something is possible. It is not just believing that Jesus lived a perfect life, died, and then rose from the dead. It's more than that. It definitely needs to include that and have knowledge of what Christ has done and intellectual assent. But it must involve trust. It must involve a willingness to trust God and allow him to lead and guide your life. While intellectual assent is important, it is not enough. What we see from James is that true saving faith will change your life. And that is why on Judgment Day, Christ can judge us by our works. For those who have truly trusted in Christ and have their names written in the book of life, the record of their life will reflect this belief. While they won't be perfect, their life will reflect reflect that they are truly trusting in Christ. Spiritual fruit will be evident. So while we are saved by grace through faith in Christ, we will be judged on our works to prove to the world that Christ has truly changed us and he's made us his own. So for all those who are truly trusting in Christ, we do not need to fear judgment day. We can actually look forward to this day with expectant hope. We look forward to the day when Christ will bring justice, knowing that he has already paid for our sins, as we've been singing. Our sins have been placed on him, and justice has been satisfied through his sacrificial death in our place. Christ has both justified us. As we follow him, he is doing the work of sanctifying us, making us new, changing us into the image of Christ. And on judgment that day, that will be evident. We have promises to know that this is true. Listen to God's promise for those who are in Christ from Romans chapter 8. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Listen to this. For God has done what the law, weakened by flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemns sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk, not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. You see that? Christ has set us free. While we cannot follow the law perfectly, Christ has accomplished it for us and given us a righteousness his righteousness, so that now we can walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. That means that we live a life that honors Christ, and we reflect that life in all that we do. The Gospel of John, chapter 5, 24, also confirms this idea. Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. Those who are truly hoping in Christ's return will be saved. While we know that on that day we will stand before him. 
we also know that because of Christ's work in our place, we will hear, well done, good and faithful servant. Christ's work is, is credited to us. That is how we can look forward to this day with hope. We hope not in our own goodness, but in Christ's work for us. His work and his, his work in the past and his continued work in our lives. But for those who are not in Christ, they cannot share this hope. For them, the thought of coming judgment, the thought of Jesus returning to judge the living and the dead, serious and terrifying thought. Facing a perfectly holy God who will judge you the way you've lived, every thought, deed, and action is a serious thing. If we fall short of our own standard of perfection, how much more will we fall short of Christ's perfect standard for us? Apart from Christ and his saving work, no one will be found righteous on that day. But the good news of the gospel is that Christ is willing to forgive. Anyone who is willing to turn from their sin and trust in him will not be rejected. Jesus makes this promise in John 6, 38, when he says, Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. So if you have not trusted in Christ, today is the day. Don't believe the lies that the enemy tries to whisper to you. Christ is worth it. Trust in him. Turn from your sin. You will not be rejected. But perhaps, maybe you're not not on either side, but kind of feel like you're in the middle today. Maybe you feel as a Christian, but you're not sure if you have the confidence to look forward to Christ's return because you know there's sin in your life, habitual sin that keeps you from having that confidence, that confidence that you can stand before him knowing that you are truly in Christ. And for you, I would, I would simply say repent and trust Jesus. Stop living in sin and trust that God's way is better. Sin always tries to keep us believing that it has a better way than Christ. That Christ's way will let us down and yet sin will leave us satisfied. But I'm encouraging you, confess your sin to someone else. A friend that you can trust. Expose your, your sin. Get it out of the dark where it loves to hide. And allow someone to help you work through that sin. You might ask, well, Josh, isn't this earning your salvation? Absolutely not. You see, we are saved by grace through faith. However, if we are living in habitual sin, we can have no confidence Christ has saved us. So, if by God's grace in your life, you are able to turn from your sin and live for him, you can have that confidence that it was his grace in your life. He was the one working to accomplish his good work. Because of that, you can have that confidence when he comes. You can look forward with hope to his return. So now that we've seen that Christ's return to judge the living and the dead causes us to hope, we will move on to our final point. Point number two is that the promise of Christ's return causes us to love. Now this one just like the first one, might sound a little strange at first. God's coming judgment 
Christ returning to judge the living and the dead causes me to love? How does, how does that work? Well, you see, the New Testament authors argued it is because Christ will one day come to judge the living and the dead that we don't have to try to be the judge. It frees us up. When we are wrongfully treated or sinned against, we can respond in love and forgiveness. Since Christ has promised to return and judge the world in righteousness, we can leave the judging to him. He is the perfect judge, and he will judge according to his perfect standard. Listen to how Paul describes this. In Romans 12, 19, he writes, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. God will bring perfect justice. All the injustices and evil that we see in our world will be taken care of one day as Christ sits on his judgment seat. While evil people continue in their sin, and day to day we see the hurt and pain all around us, the promise of Christ's return helps remind us it will not always be this way. Evil and sin will not always be allowed to continue forever. There is a day coming when God will bring perfect justice for all evil committed. This is such an important truth to understand. We trust in a perfect God. He will not overlook injustice. He has already set the day and will bring it about for evil-based justice. Since God is the judge then, we don't have to be the judge. We are freed up now to love others and love God. This doctrine enables us to love others because when we're sinned against, we know that we're not the one responsible for getting the revenge. Jesus was a perfect example of this. Peter describes it in his letter in 1 Peter 2, 22-23, talking about Christ's suffering. Peter writes this, He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Jesus was totally innocent. He was totally undeserving of the way he was treated, and yet he did not fight back. He accepted the wrongful treatment knowing that God would bring perfect justice. We can follow in his example. Because of the promise of Christ's return and his judgment, we are freed up to love others. We're not overlooking their sin, but we are trusting in our perfect judge. He will bring justice, not us. We can follow his example. But as some of you, some of you hear this, you might be thinking, but why does God wait for so long? Why does he allow the evil to happen at all rather than wiping it out right now? While I won't pretend to know all of God's plans, we do know that the Bible teaches that God is patient. He is waiting until the full number of his people are brought into the church. We see this in 2 Peter chapter 3, 9. Peter is writing about Christ's second coming, and he writes this, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises, as some count slowness, but is patient you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. God is not slow. He is patient. 
And he is waiting for the full number of those who will be saved to be brought in. He is allowing evil and injustice to continue so that there will be time for people from every tribe, nation, and tongue to be brought into his kingdom. I personally am grateful that God has waited this long. He waited long enough so that I could hear the gospel and have a chance to repent, and by his grace, through his Holy Spirit working in my life, I did. And this truth motivates me. It motivates me to share the gospel with others rather than spending my time judging others based on how they live, how they look, the sins that they commit. My job is made simple. God is the judge. He has rescued me and now he is calling me to be an ambassador, to go out and invite others to receive the same grace that I did not deserve, that you did not deserve. That's why it's grace. So knowing that Christ is the the one that can judge, we are freed to share the gospel. So my question for you is, what area of your life is not reflecting the truth that Christ is our perfect judge? Are you willing to forgive others and let go of grudges? Or are you holding on to things, secretly trying to pay people back with ways that they have hurt you? Or perhaps seeing the injustice and evil in the world causes you to doubt God's goodness. As you see things outside and on the news, maybe you've been tempted to think that God is not powerful enough to stop sin or to bring justice. But I would call you to remember this truth that Christ is our perfect judge. His justice is thorough and complete. We do not need to try to add anything to it. Trust God. Forgive those who have hurt you. Look forward to the day when Christ will come again to right every wrong and take his people home. That's the call for believers who know that we can hope in Christ's second coming. We can hope and we can love knowing that Christ has accomplished our salvation. And as we close today, I want to finish by reading a passage in Revelation, since we spent time looking at what the judgment day looks like, I want to finish our time by looking at the passage just after that. If you would turn to Revelation chapter 21, we're looking at verses 1 through 7. And like I said, this, is, this comes right after the day of judgment. This is what we believers have to look forward to. Revelation chapter 21, 1 through 7. The word of the Lord says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband, and a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man, and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And he who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. 
I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. This is what we look forward to. This is what we long for. This is what frees us up to love, share the gospel with.